Well, good morning. My name is uh, Chris Brockway. I have the real joy of being involved in the leadership of the church here at Christchurch Baptist Church and the real privilege again this morning of opening up God's Word. I can't tell you what a privilege that is uh, week by week to be able to open up God's Word to try and explain it. And my great prayer this morning is Holy Spirit come and just bring this text alive in the ears of each of us who will hear it uh, today. Well, the really good news is that if you're joining us for the first time or maybe you missed last weekend, the good news is that you've only missed one week of our new teaching series called Simple, uh, which is a journey through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. If you're with us last weekend, you might remember that I spoke about Paul's simple theology, which he expresses in the opening verses of this letter. I highlighted the challenge which Paul gives throughout the letter, and it's a challenge you're going to hear week after week after week with a few other nuances as well. But his challenge to the church in Colossae not to water down or to substitute Jesus out of their thinking or out of their theology. It was a very real risk for the church because of all the issues they were wrestling with then. And I want to suggest to you it's a very real risk for us, even in the church today as well. Paul was consistently warning the church in Colossae against accepting a Christless Christianity. A Christless Christianity. It sounds like a a ridiculous contradiction, doesn't it? But it's surprising how easy Jesus can get tipexed out. There's a, a reference for those of you born before 1990. Tipexed out, or if you're born after 1990, deleted out of our faith journey. I wonder if you recall that equation from last weekend. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In Paul's simple theology or his simple words about God, he said to us, look, hope produces faith and faith turns into love. Hope is the root, faith is the plant and love is the fruit that grows on that plant. Well, this weekend, I want us to explore what more Paul has to say on this theme. But two, we're going to find out a bit more about discovering and discerning God's will so that we can live lives that honour our God. Well, let's uh, open up God's word together, shall we? Uh, Colossians chapter 1, if you're looking in an old-fashioned Bible, please turn to that now. Uh, If you want to look it up online, you can click the Bible tab on our online church platform and look up Colossians chapter 1. And this morning, I'm going to be reading from verse 9 through to 14. It says this, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Well, this morning's scripture reading is a continuation of Paul's opening words of thanksgiving. Next weekend, Paul is going to launch into preacher mode. And I think next weekend is probably the best scripture verse that's captured in the whole of scripture as it speaks about who Jesus is and what he's achieved. So next weekend, Paul goes into preacher mode. But for this weekend, he's still in the stage of praying. 
Now, I've been a follower of Jesus for more than three decades, which I find quite shocking when I remember that statistic. But during that time, I really hope that I've grown up. Now, I'm not talking about growing up physically. That's self-evident, isn't it? By my hairline, by my midlife spread, and by the fact that actually I think I'm probably about to start shrinking. Far from growing up, I think I'm starting to grow down. In three weeks' time, I will shockingly be halfway towards being 90 years of age. By the way, my birthday is the 4th of February, if you want to write that down in your diary now. Of course, when I speak about growing up, I'm speaking about growing up spiritually. And there's a big question that I wrestle with in life, and it's this, is am I more mature in my faith today than I was three decades ago when I came to faith? Well, I really hope so. Well, in fact, I know so. I know that I am. But perhaps there's even more, a much bigger, much more important question, and it's this. Am I living my life today in such a way that I have a chance of being more spiritually mature tomorrow? Now, that's a good question to wrestle with, isn't it? Am I living my life today in such a way that I have the chance of being more spiritually mature tomorrow? Well, that's my desire. It's probably your desire too, that I, we, you will be maturing, not just some of the time, not just in fits and starts, but all of the time. And if that's going to happen, then it's absolutely essential that we have some really good foundations in place. But I wonder, what does spiritual growth actually look like? Can you measure spiritual growth by how often you go to church? Can you measure your spiritual growth by how many ministries you're involved in in the life of the church? Can you measure your spiritual growth by whether or not you're actively taking part in a small group? Could you measure your uh, spiritual growth by your bank statement? Can you measure it by how much you're giving to the church or to other charities? I wonder, can you measure your spiritual growth by working out how many prayer gatherings you joined us with, with last week during our week of prayer? Well, maybe these are just markers. They're certainly not a full measure of our spiritual maturity. But in our text today, it seems to me that Paul gets to the heart of the matter. In summary, he says, look, pursue what's right, leave what's left, and keep Jesus at the very center. Right, left, and center. So firstly, Paul challenges his hearers to pursue what's right. This is in the second half of verse 9 through to the first half of verse 10. Paul is saying this, that spiritual growth is learning how God wants us to live so that we as his children can please him by living that way. Through his prayer over the Colossians, Paul shows us what spiritual growth looks like. And actually, it's not that complicated. It's essentially about investing in the right things, and then as God's Spirit empowers us, living right. Spiritual growth means understanding how God wants us to live so that we can seek to please him in all things. That's in a nutshell what spiritual growth is. And we find the nut in that nutshell by joining up verse 9 with verse 10. Verse 9, we ask God to give you, so it's a gift, complete knowledge of his will, and to give you, well, yet more gifts, spiritual wisdom and understanding. Complete knowledge, spiritual wisdom and understanding. These are the gifts. But Paul is keen to point out the fact that actually these are gifts that are given with a purpose. There's a so that in verse 10, and the so that links verse 9. 
Verse 10 says, so that with the purpose that the way you live will always honour and please the Lord and your lives will produce all kinds of good fruit. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, so that we will honour, please and bear fruit. Verse 9 and 10 join together say, know God's will, which he gives us a gift, so that you will honour God and bear fruit. That's it. That's what spiritual growth looks like. And it's all about understanding God's will. And then, and this is the crucial bit that many of us miss out in our walk of faith, actually seeking to live out the things that we learn from God. This is a wise and foolish builder territory, isn't it? If you know the parable, know God's will and, and live it out. Be wise, not a fool, you might remember Jesus said. Now, if your life is anything like mine, I have to confess that whilst all this is so easy to say, and I deeply long that they would be the realities of my life, it oftentimes feels harder to do. Maybe you know that to be true as well, that <coughs> that's the reality of living, isn't it, as a broken human being. And I thank God for his mercy because of that, because I'm always going to fall short of the way that God calls me to live. But I wonder how often do you find yourself foolishly building sandcastles on the beach rather than wisely building a fortress on the rock? Paul's prayer is a great prayer, isn't it, for us to pray over ourselves. But it's also a great prayer for us to pray over others. That's what Paul is doing as he brings it to us. He's praying over the church in Colossians. He's saying to them, look, church in Colossians, we can say, look, church here at CBC, would we, would we be filled with the knowledge of God's will? But being filled with the, the knowledge of God's will is not so much about understanding specific things like, God, what do you want me to do? Or God, who do you want me to marry? Or uh, God, which phone or TV package should I upgrade to? Although it might include some of those things. Knowing God's will is much more and it's primarily to do with knowing God's moral will as it's revealed in his word. It's about being so attuned to God that we understand how God works and we start to understand what God wants. Knowing God's will in general, we could say, is essential in informing the decisions that we make with the specific we're talking here about God's macro will, not his micro will. Now, you know, won't find those phrases in the NIV. I made them up. But Paul is so keen, isn't he, to drive the point home that knowing the will of God isn't the end of the story. It's only, in fact, half the battle. Paul's prayer-filled petition over this church is that the believers' heads and their hearts would be so filled with this knowledge of God's moral will that this knowledge in turn would control their thoughts and their words and their deeds. Now, all this is a natural consequence of living in a relationship with Jesus. It's not something that we do out of our own strength or because of our own hard work. Do you remember that Jesus once said, whilst challenging the legalism of the Pharisees, out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. I love those words. Out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. And then he goes on to tell the parable of the wise and the foolish builder. His point there is that if we fill our heads and our hearts with the things of God as revealed in his word, and then crucially act upon them, then we'll overflow with good stuff, which honors God and will be living right. Or to use Paul's terminology from our text today, we'll live a life that's worthy of the Lord and will please him in every way. 
In a sense, it's all about the stability of our foundations. And that's what Paul is challenging here in the church in Colossae. He's saying, check your foundations and make sure they're sound and make sure they're rooted on Jesus. The false Gnostic teachers who'd infiltrated the church in Colossae, I spoke about them last weekend. These were the guys who were promoting a Christless Christianity. It would appear that they were emphasizing how their understanding, how their knowledge and how their human wisdom was going to bring spiritual fullness into the church in Colossae. Their message was simple. Avoid Jesus, push him to one side and instead follow us and then you'll find a spiritual fullness. And to that, the Apostle Paul says, no, that's a really good example of building on the sand. These things are much more spiritual than that. In fact, it's entirely spiritual. All of this is a work of God's Spirit. And like all the gifts of the Spirit, you simply have to ask, hold out your hands, and he'll give them to you as a grace gift. But Paul is saying, receive the gift, but don't ignore it in the way that these false teachers are challenging you to. I always remember as a a child, I had a a, a nan who was quite elderly, um, even back then, and she's passed away now. But I do remember at Christmas time, our family would give her a gift and she would kind of look at the gift, feel around the gift, explore the gift and say, thank you very much. That's very nice. And then she'd place it on the floor without even opening it. It's nice, she would say. But most of the time, she didn't even have a clue what the gift was. She just assumed she knew what the gift was. And into that, I would say to us this morning this, is that the gifts that God gives are more than just nice. In fact, they're life transforming. So if that's the truth, then why would we receive them like my nan did and do nothing with them? Why would we receive these gifts and then not unwrap them? Paul says to the church in Colossae, ignore the false teachers and their earthly ideas and instead orientate your life around God's heavenly knowledge and God's understanding Because it's there and it's only there that you're going to find fullness in life. Now, Charles Spurgeon once said all this much more robustly and much more theologically than me. And as he said all this, he helpfully made the distinction between wisdom and knowledge at the same time. This is what he says. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many know a great deal and they're all the greater fools for it. There's no fool so great as a knowing fool. What a great line. There's no fool so great as a knowing fool. But to know how to use wisdom is to have wisdom. Can you see Spurgeon there makes the same point that Paul and Jesus were making. We need to take the wisdom and we need to apply the wisdom that we receive. But he also makes the point there that spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding are a gift of God's spirit. And compared to the wisdom of the false teachers, uh, Spurgeon is saying there, look, God's wisdom stands in stark contrast. The difference is chalk and cheese. In fact, they're poles apart. Spiritual wisdom is received as a gift from God, not by human ingenuity. And when that wisdom is applied, then it enables us to live right. Or perhaps it would be better to say it enables us to live righter because as broken human beings, we're always going to be needy recipients of another gift that God loves to give to us, which is his lavish grace. So firstly, Paul doesn't simply pray that the Colossians would know the will of God, but more than that, he wants them also to apply the will of God in their lives. This is the function, if you like, of godly knowledge and wisdom and understanding. 
Live right, Paul says, by knowing God's will and by working it out in your lives. So having prayed for others and, and even yourself, verse 9, to be filled with a gift of knowledge um, through wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that, verse 10, we can live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him every way, I wonder what difference can we expect to see in the lives of ourselves and others when we apply this prayer to our lives? In other words, what does a life worthy actually look like? Well, thankfully, Paul goes on to tell us in the second half of verse 10 and through to verse 12 what to look out for. He says there, if you're living with godly wisdom, this wisdom that the Spirit gives, you will be at least four things. He says, verse 10, you'll be fruitful in every good work. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, you'll be growing too in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, he says, you'll be strengthened with all power, enabling you to live with endurance and with patience. And then fourthly, he says, verse 12, you'll be joyfully giving thanks. You'll be fruitful, growing, strengthened and joyful. What wonderful depictors of a follower of Jesus. Who wouldn't want more of those things in their lives? Now, before I go on this morning, I really want to note something that I think is so important, and it's so often that we get this wrong. All of this that Paul is talking about here is a walk. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not a 100-meter dash. It's not the case that suddenly when we pray this prayer over ourselves or somebody else, that, that we suddenly get zapped by God, and suddenly everything is sorted, if only it were that simple. To know God's will and to grow in God's will and to grow spiritually into maturity is a steady process in a deliberate direction. You won't get there by a dramatic spiritual experience or by a quick fix. In fact, that's what the false teachers were offering to the church in Colossae. But you'll get there rather by a steady, deliberate, day-by-day growth in understanding by engaging with God's words. It's what Eugene Peterson calls in his book, a long obedience in the same direction in an instant society. All of this is counterintuitive to us because we live instantly. We want everything now. But Eugene Peterson says it's a long obedience in the same direction, even as we live in an instant society. God knows what's best for us, and he never feeds us the spiritual equivalent of McDonald's fast food. He feeds us slow cooker, gourmet spiritual food, which satisfies for the whole of eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but I've often tried the quick fix. It's often tempting, isn't it? But Paul says, look, if you're offered a choice between the two, the false teacher's fast food or God's gourmet banquet, then take what God offers and leave what's left. Take what God offers and leave what's left. Paul's opening words in verse 9, in fact, reinforce this idea that spiritual maturity is a lifelong, ongoing process. Did you notice verse 9? He says this, we have not stopped praying. Well, why didn't he stop praying? Because he knew it was an ongoing work. He then goes on to say, we continually, we continually ask God to fill you. Why? Because they haven't made it yet. You're not there yet, and in fact, you won't get there perfectly this side of heaven. So we're going to keep on keeping on praying and continually asking God to fill you. What a good thing to pray over other people, but too, a good prayer to pray over ourselves. Let's keep on keeping on praying that God would fill us. So in this journey of long obedience in the same direction, we we need to be always discerning. That's Paul's challenge here in the letter. We need to accept what's right, and we need to leave what's left. 
And what should be left is often the quick fix. I guess I've been a Christian long enough now to know that you should be suspicious if anything looks too good to be true. It probably isn't uh, that great, actually, unless it comes from and is consistent with the teachings of Jesus. All of this is Paul's exhortation to the church in Colossae. Pursue all these good things that come in this marathon race, this marathon run with God, and leave well alone the instant fix that the false teachers are offering in the sprint. This is a long-distance race. Now, of course, that might sound really grueling, but actually knowing God and journeying with God in this, this run actually is the most exciting thing that can ever happen to you. Knowing God is actually the secret of excitement, and it's the secret of vitality in life. What I've discovered is this, is that people who know God are never bored because knowing God actually is the opposite of boredom. Knowing God is the opposite of boredom. If you're bored as a Christian, it's probably because you don't adequately know the God who we're invited to know. So what is the fruit of a worthy walk? Well, Paul says, look, there are four signs that a person is pursuing what's right and that they're leaving what's left. Four things. He says, those who are walking worthy are those whose lives are bearing godly fruit. Well, what's godly fruit? We know it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we were loving, if we pursue God, we'll become even more loving. If we were full of joy already, if we pursue the wisdom of God, we'll be full of even more joy, and so on. Secondly, he says, those who are walking worthy are those who are growing always in the knowledge of God. There's nothing static about this journey. And I find that really exciting. At nearly age 45, when I get to age 90, if I continue to pursue the things of God, there'll still be more for me to know. There's nothing boring about this walk and this journey. Thirdly, Paul says, a life that's pleasing to God cannot be lived in your own strength. But it must be lived in the strength that's given as a gift from God. And then we'll know power and then we'll know endurance in our lives, which is a God-given thing. And then fourthly, he says, those who uh, who are walking worthy are always thankful for their salvation. What you'll notice with our text today is it's the perfect transition into all that Paul is going to be saying next week as he gets so excited about this salvation that we've come to, to know and love if you're walking worthily, if you're being filled constantly with the knowledge of good, uh, of God, then a characteristic of that worthy life is that you'll always be excited about the salvation that you have. <coughs> so thirdly and finally, Paul goes on to talk about keeping Jesus at the center. As Paul exits out of praying mode, he gets ready to launch into preacher mode next weekend. And he calls the church to keep... Jesus at the very centre, verses 13 to 14. Excuse me, my annoying cough is coming back. Verse 13 and 14. For he, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. (coughs) All of this, I think, is such an amazing statement of truth. Actually, it doesn't need much exposition, does it? In Christ, we get privileges we don't deserve. We get the Father's love. We have the Saviour's presence. We end up with a family <coughs> excuse me, of brothers and sisters. 
We have the promise of eternal life after death. We get delivered from darkness into light, says Paul. He says, you'll experience freedom. The church in Colossae were once hopeless and then they found hope when they came to Christ. The chains that used to hold them were broken and instead they were experiencing life in all of its fullness. And Paul says to them, look, if that's been your journey from darkness into light, from bondage into freedom, then why on earth would you accept a new set of chains that these religious leaders are trying to give you? Don't pursue the phony gospel. It will put you back in chains, says Paul. Keep Jesus front and center and make sure that your heart stays free. (coughs) The writer of Hebrews, I think, summarizes all of this message this morning so brilliantly when he says this in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We need to pursue what's right. We need to leave that which is left, which is not of God. And we need to keep Jesus front and center. I wonder, can we pray together for a moment? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you this morning that we remind ourselves in this text that all of these things we've been speaking about actually are gifts of your grace. Aside from you, we simply can't receive them. But Lord, we do hear the challenge to not only ask for these gifts, but also be ready and willing when you give them the gift of this knowledge of yourself, that actually we would apply these gifts to our lives. Lord, we hear the challenge of the writer of Hebrews to throw off everything that would hinder us, every sin that would so easily entangle us. And Lord, as we find freedom, we hear the challenge to run this race marked out for us with our eyes fixed on Jesus, Jesus front and center. Lord, our choice this morning actually is to worship you. Worship you, a God who loves to reveal more of himself to us, but to worship you too, a God who understands what it is to to bless us with grace and to forgive us for the times when we get it wrong. Lord, thank you. Would we remind ourselves of that grace-filled message this morning? Lord, if the stars were made to worship, so will I. Lord, if the mountains will bow in reverence, then so will I. If the oceans roar your greatness, then so will I. If everything exists to lift you high, then Lord, so will I. If the wind goes where you'll send it, then so will I. If the rocks cry out in silence, then so will I. Lord, make me a worshipper. (coughs) Make me a worshipper that keeps Jesus front and centre. In his name I pray.